0: It's good to see many of you here. If you're joining us from home, I want to say hello to you. Thanks for taking time to be with us this morning. We are longing for the time when we can all gather uh, easily uh, with each other. This morning we're continuing our study of Jesus and uh, we're in his public ministry. Uh, We're in chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And if you're like me, if you uh, grew up in the church or are at all familiar with Jesus, the stories of Jesus... Uh, you will be very familiar with this one. It's uh, a st- the story of Jesus healing a paralytic. You'll find this story recounted in some way in three of the four Gospels, and, um, and uh, you're probably familiar with it. But one thing I want to call to your attention is that you'll notice here in this story, and really as we go forward in Jesus' public ministry, you're going to notice increasing levels of opposition. that the the issues of controversy that seem to surface around him. I want you to pay special attention to that because not everything he's saying and not everything he's doing, um, everybody is excited about. And as we read this, I want you to see how Jesus carries himself in those moments. Because one of the ways that uh, we can come to understand a person is is by looking at how they carry themselves in the midst of controversy, especially when they're opposed. Let me read this passage. I'll pray for our time together and ask God for help, and uh, and then we'll dig in. This is God's word, Luke chapter five, verses seventeen through twenty-six. On one of those days, he Jesus was teaching. And they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and, be, and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Let me pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be good and right, pleasing before you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Would you please edify us and encourage us as we dig into this story? Help us, Lord Jesus, to see more of you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When was the last time that you walked into a room and just knew something special was about to happen? Like there was electricity in the air, maybe there was tension between the people that were there, and you were convinced in the inside that something sweet was about to happen and you were about to witness it. I ask you this question because I think Luke sets the stage for us to understand that the people there might have felt like there was electricity in the air that day. Because in the midst of Jesus's ministry, we see new people arrive on the scene. These are Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, what are they doing there? He adds that these men have come from from all over the place. They've come from as far away as Judea. They've come from Galilee and even as far away as Jerusalem, which would have been quite a journey for them. His ministry is attracting people far and wide. Word has gotten out about these things that Jesus is doing and these things that he's saying. And these religious authorities have shown up because it is their duty. It's really their job to check this guy out. He's attracted their attention, which makes sense. That would have happened, uh, that that, that certainly would have happened. And they were prepared, they were there to come and see what's going on and assess what this upstart rabbi was all about. And they were prepared to oppose him if his teachings didn't line up with theirs. And they need to know, it's really their job to know that if Jesus is who he says he is. That's the question before them as they sit in that room and listen to Jesus' teaching and see what he does. That's the question before them and it's also the question before us. Whenever we look at these stories, the question before us is, is Jesus who he says he is? Because if he's not, there's no reason to over-exercise our conscience about this guy. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then it changes everything for us. And that's the question I want you to wrestle with. Is this man who he says he is? And I'm going to attend to that question by seeking to ask and answer three other questions as we make our way through this story. What does Jesus see? What does Jesus claim? And what does Jesus confront? What does Jesus see? What does Jesus claim? And what does Jesus confront? First, what does Jesus see? Hey, any public speaker, any teacher, preacher needs to know. It's like you develop this intuitive sense. You got to know who's in the room and why they're there. And so it would be no mistake for Jesus to know that there are religious authorities now in the room who are checking him out. He knows they're there and he knows why they're there. But the thing that seems to grab his attention and hold it really would have served as a great disturbance for everybody else in the room. Because just think about what this would have been like if you had been there and you start hearing stomping around on the roof above you. And maybe you hear some digging and maybe dirt is falling down in front of Jesus. It would have grabbed their attention. And when Jesus looks at these men who are lowering their friend who is paralyzed down in front of them, what does Jesus see? It's in verse 20. It says that he sees their faith. Now, I don't think that that would have been what everybody else would have seen that day. Some might have been concerned about this uh, like are they destroying a part of the house are they going to fix that or pay for it to be fixed some might have thought that this was just a selfish interruption to the more important things that Jesus was doing but Jesus looked at them and with patient and loving eyes he sees the faith of these men that are doing that now why because you don't do that if you're not carrying a deep burden of love for this man, if you're par- being paralyzed, is is a difficult thing. If you were paralyzed in this day, you probably had to beg for your living because you can't work. It's likely you would have bankrupted yourself trying to seek healing in all kinds of ways. And these friends are so troubled by the state of their friend's life that they are willing to risk public embarrassment, the kind of shame that could get you run out of a village in order to, in order to interrupt these things Jesus is doing and get their friend because they are convinced that if they could somehow get this man to Jesus, not only could he heal him, but they would, that he would. Because you don't go to these great lengths for just a shot in the dark. They did this because their faith convinced them that they should. That's what Jesus saw in them as they did it. And I want to be clear on this point because I want you to see the gravity of what's going on here. What these men did and what Jesus saw was a publicly discernible commitment of faith shared by each of these men willing to risk significantly for the sake of their friend. And Jesus loved what he saw. Now let me stop and just ask you a question right here before we move forward. When you're in great need, or maybe someone you love is in great need, where do you go? What are the things you might turn to first? You might call a friend, right? Like that's wise, you should do that. You might line up some experts, that might be able to help guide you and advise you on the way that you should go. And that's wise too, should absolutely do that. We have resources that are all around us that can help us deal with our circumstances. But the question is, where does bringing your needs to Jesus fall on your list of important things to do during times of difficulty? Uh, Just as a confession to you, One of the things I was convicted by most as I studied this story is um, that I turn to Jesus in prayer and ask for help after, usually after all my other options have been exhausted. Like now I might need Jesus. And maybe that was the case for these men. Maybe they exhausted all their other options. But often we feel. Like, we need to solve our own problems or find ways to solve our own problems. And I just want you to see how Jesus responded as these men came to him in faith, that he saw their faith and it moved them to compassion. And when Jesus sees the faith of these men, how does he respond? Well, he responds by making a really interesting claim. He claims that he has divine authority. He looks at this paralytic laying down in front of him, and, uh, and he forgives his sins. Now look, there's a lot going on here, and it's really interesting to me that we don't know necessarily how the paralytic responded to hearing that his sins were suddenly forgiven. I've heard a lot of people you know, venture as far as what that might have been like, but we don't know. None of the gospel accounts like, tell us the story of what he said, but we do know how the religious authorities responded. Because they know that Jesus, when he forgave that man's sins, that Jesus was making a claim to divine authority. He was making this claim to divine authority because only God has has the authority to forgive sins against God. It's only God holds the appropriate position and authority to be able to look at you and to me and to this man that was lying on that mat and say, your sins are forgiven. And the religious authorities are right to question in their hearts. Who is this man who forgives this man's sin? And they accuse him of blasphemy, of, of claiming a power or an authority that's not right for his to claim. And listen, if they are right about Jesus, if he is not who he says that he is, then he is guilty of blasphemy. And blasphemy is a capital offense, just so you get a sense for how high the stakes are at this point. And so Jesus claims this uh, this religious authority, this divine authority, and then what does he do? He looks at the Pharisees, and then he looks, in order to prove his claim to divine authority, he offers a display of divine power. And he says to the man, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And what followed next... Is, uh, is nothing less than incredibly beautiful. Because this paralytic found strength in his legs that he had not been familiar with for who knows how long. And as he bent over to roll up his mat, he was probably stretching muscles in his back that he hadn't felt for a really long time. Maybe he forgot they were there. And then he walked home Jesus restored this man I like to think maybe he jogged a little bit or maybe he was skipping and whistling on his way home I don't know but Jesus substantiated this divine authority he proved that he is who he says he is with this display of divine power and he's offering to everyone there to you and to me a proof that Jesus really is exactly who he says he is And what's stunning to me to consider is that in the midst of this kind of scrutiny by men in power who can wield it just about any way they want to, that Jesus doesn't flinch. And he answers their questions in such a way that helps everyone there witness the generosity of God given to the needy who simply approach him in faith. It is This is incredibly sweet what Jesus does. And when he did this, when he did this, he's answering controversy with his own confrontation. Like they are confronting him and he is confronting some important things back. He is confronting all manner of things here. But I want you to, I want to just name two. The first thing he confronts is our, his and our understanding of our deepest needs Because when he looked at the paralytic and forgave his sins, Jesus was attending to his deepest needs. And can you imagine saying to someone who is battling with the tremendous difficulties of life as a paralytic and saying to them that they are carrying a deeper wound that's far more important than this one? I mean, that is just staggering. And the Bible teaches us, the Bible teaches us over and over again that all of the wounds that we bear, that all of our frayed longings, that all of our needs, that all of the persistent ways that we find to hurt ourselves and to hurt each other can be traced back to a time when Adam and Eve sinned against God. The Bible teaches us that that God created you and me for his glory, to, to exist in right relationship with him, but that's... That's our highest good. And that's actually all of the longings of our lives point to that longing. And their great sin was that they lived out a notion that they didn't need God. The temptation that was put before them was that they could become like God. And when they ate the fruit of their misplaced desire, we see that no one's life anymore resembles the life that God intended for us. And if you're here wondering... Why so much in our own lives and so much in our own hearts and so much in our own world can feel so wrong so often, the biblical proposition to you is that this is why. And look, I get it. This year feels awfully hard, doesn't it? I saw a lot of memes yesterday that were questioning whether we want to do a loud daylight savings time to add another hour to the year of 2020, right? I mean, it's been hard. And I just don't know how my heart might be able to even handle another headline for an article that tells me why it might be unreasonable to hope that next month might be any better than this one. Like the things that we bear as we make our forward, as we make our way forward in these days, can just feel incredibly heavy and difficult right now. But the biblical claim that applies to us as we think about these things is that the shadows of our presenting circumstances are a reminder. That we make our way under a curse that entered the world that day when Adam and Eve sinned. That is what we are wrestling with. And our deepest need is for restoration for our lives with God through the forgiveness of our sins. And I have lost where I am in my outline. Okay, I'm back. I think I'm not. I am. I'm sorry about that. And listen, as we make our way forward with these, bearing these wounds, and as we make our way forward with troubled hearts that we can't seem to escape, that's a reality for many of us. It can be so easy for us to wonder if this is all there is. It it can be just so tempting for us to think that it's going to be on me to make this right. To make my lives and the lives of the people I love better. And we can exhaust ourselves with that kind of thinking. It's about the simplest thing for us to adopt a kind of a skepticism. That Jesus is who he says he is. And that there is a better world to come. And so I want you to see that Jesus was staring right at the heart of the skeptic when he spoke to the Pharisees. These guys are there wondering who he is. And he says to them, I want you to know, he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I I grew up thinking that this story was just another example of Jesus looking at religious authorities and kind of dunking all over them. That um, That he is putting them in their rightful place and they have no right to challenge him and he's asserting his authority all over again. And look, there are times as we go forward where that's absolutely what's happening. Like he is challenging their authority. But in this case, it could be that one of the kindest, most gracious things that he said to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that day, was was he said that you may know that the Son of Man has a... I want you to know who I am. And they would have been unmistaken in simply understanding this this term that he used for himself, the Son of Man. These people were deeply learned in the scriptures. And they would have known that this comes from the book of Daniel chapter 7 where we see this ancient prophetic promise that God gives his people that a son of man was coming as God's agent for salvation this someone who would be both human and divine who had the power and the authority to establish an everlasting kingdom that shall never be destroyed Jesus is confronting the skepticism right at the heart of these Pharisees by inviting them to hope because to know Jesus even in the midst of trouble is to know hope and the healing of the paralyzed man that day as awesome as that would have been was just the beginning of the promise of restoration that Jesus was bringing to bear. And it won't be long before Jesus substantiates this awesome claim because he will make his way and offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross, bearing out his love for all and conquered death by his resurrection for all those who look to him in faith. And the mission of Jesus was to see, is to see, that our deepest need, The restoration of our life with God is answered fully and finally in Him for your sake, for the sake of those who look to Him in faith. And just as Jesus still bears the scars of the crucifixion, the promise of Jesus is that ourselves, our lives, and our world will one day no longer bear the scar of this curse that we labor under. And I don't, think it's, I don't think it's hard for us to just wonder if this is all there is. And just as Jesus confronts the skepticism of the Pharisees, I want him to confront the skepticism in our own hearts too because it is so easy for us. Listen, it is the faithfulness of Jesus that confronts the inner skeptic that tells you that you are not forgiven. But do you know that Jesus forgives you and so you can rejoice? It is the sacrifice of Jesus that confronts the inner skeptic that robs us of peace and tells us that we are not worthy of love. But do you know That Jesus loves you with an unquenching love and he gives you his peace. It's the resurrection of Jesus that speaks to the inner skeptic in all of us that exhausts us and tells us that this life is all there is. But do you know that your lives are hidden with Christ right now so you can rest? And do you know that it's the sovereign voice of Jesus that speaks with authority to the inner skeptic during an election year that tells us that this world is all there is? But do you know that Jesus is renewing all things and your hope and his continued work is not misplaced? Listen, all of our fears, I am just trying to lay out in front of you that all of our fears and our curiosities and our doubts, they find their answer in the person and the work of Jesus Christ who brings his grace to bear in the places that we need it the most, in our inner hearts. And so let me give you one more thing, and then I'll be done. Because the question I want you to ask is, do you really believe that hope is coming? That hope is here and light is coming. That there is a better day for you and for me. I came across a short YouTube video uh, earlier this week. You all know that Halloween was last night. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, every year as a pastor, I uh, get end up in conversations about, you know, like what our position and how we should, as Christians, how should we interact with Halloween. This is not that, okay? If you ever want to talk about that, that's great, but I'm not like making a statement about how I feel about Halloween. But I came across this great video that explains some of the history of Halloween in the church, and it really is just a really sweet poem that lays out uh, the hope that we have in Jesus and the triumph of light over darkness. This is just an excerpt. I I want to speak these things over you. This poet says that the Bible begins with a 4 resolved fight. For a moment the darkness, then let there be light. First grief in the gloom, then joy from the east. First valley of shadow, then mountaintop feast. First wait for Messiah, then long-promised dawn. First desolate Friday, and then Easter morn. The armies of darkness, while doing their worst can never extinguish this dazzling sunburst. The triumph is not with the forces of night. It dawned with the one who said, I am the light. Listen, when the people in the house that day witnessed who Jesus was in that electric atmosphere, the story says that amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and they were filled with awe. And look, I don't know much, but I think that's the right response. Because they glimpsed a foretaste of what Jesus was bringing, the eternal triumph of light over darkness, and they were amazed. Let's pray right now and ask that the Holy Spirit capture us too with this sense of awe and amazement and wonder together at the good things that God has done and promises to do. Let me pray. Father, we, we need to believe these things. And so I pray that you would take the story and sink it deep in our hearts and help us understand the goodness of what it means to be a part of your kingdom and to participate in the things that you've done and are doing. Would you help us to find rest and joy that you look on us with eyes of compassion and help us to trust your grace And I pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.